Everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We have managed to make it to episode 60. We're launching a new theme all about reshoring. And I'd like to introduce our very special guest, uh, founder of the Reshoring Initiative, uh, Harry Moser. Harry, thank you for being here with us. <laughs> thank you, Dave. Thank, thank you, Vlad, and uh, everybody out there. Uh, great to be with you. Appreciate you joining us today, Harry. Before we dive into the Reshoring Initiative and kind of unveil maybe what you do today, could you give us a little bit more of a background of who you are? How did you get into manufacturing? Maybe what did you study and how did you get to where you are today? Okay. So I, I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is right across the river from, from uh, New York City. And I uh, you know, went through high school there, went to MIT, got a that uh, bachelor's in me mechanical engineering, then a master's in engineering. Uh, and interesting, the MIT logo is men say manna, so mind and hand. So combining sort of the best of the mind, which maybe Harvard had before MIT came along, with the best of doing something with your hands, which MIT brought to the party, so to speak. Um, then went on eventually at night and got an MBA at University of Chicago. The, uh, I had a series of, of manufacturing jobs, started with GE in their manufacturing program in Schenectady, uh, came back and worked at MIT, worked for Dizomatic, a, a foundry equipment company, uh, National Acme, a, a traditional long-term U.S. company, Cleveland Tristrel, National Acme, screw machines, uh, Rotofinish, that was my first presidency, Rotofinish, vibratory finishing machines, and then my best job, you know, this was the peak of my regular career. Uh, I joined Charmi Technologies, which is EDM machines initially. And uh, so I started there as president in 85 and retired in 2010 uh, as, and became chairman, chairman emeritus, you know, what have you. So 25 years running the company, it was wonderful. It was a, a dream job for me. We, when I came in, we were seventh or eighth in the industry. And, and when I retired, we, we were number one. You know, so this is the kind of thing you, you, know, you hope for in, in, in your career. Um, the that that company is now called GF Machining Solutions, and it's EDM and and high five-axis milling machines. So when I retired, that I I founded the Reshoring Initiative, and part of the motivation for that was because in my hometown of Elizabeth, the biggest thing in town was Singer sewing machine, mm -hmm. and their their main factory in the world, their principal factory was there. Two and a half million square feet, 5,000 employees in its day, the biggest factory of any kind in the world. And I drove past 20 years ago and it's all gone. Nothing is made, as far as I can tell, Singer makes nothing in the US. Everything's imported. And during my career, I tried to sell to all kinds of industries, foundry equipment, machine tools, and the industries and the companies went out of business, driven out by imports. And and I never got to sell me. So so between all those backgrounds, somebody's got to do something about this. So when I retired, I founded the Reshoring Initiative. And Harry, if I may, I, I would assume, you know, that most of our listeners or viewers would understand what reshoring entails. But could you give us maybe a more detailed picture? Could you define reshoring and also kind of list some opportunities and maybe challenges associated with it? Okay, that's, that's pretty easy. The uh, so we, we actually track two things. One is reshoring. So General Motors can reshore. It can once again produce a car or a component here that it for a while was producing somewhere else and shipping here. That's reshoring. But then separately, foreign direct investment (FDI). So if Toyota builds a factory here, 
instead of shipping in from China or Japan or somewhere else. It's equally just as equally brought a, a job to the United States. So we, so we don't care who owns it as long as, as long as it isn't China making uh, missiles for us. You know, the uh, uh, so reshoring FDI, we track the two of them. Uh, we also track uh, two, two within each of those. There's the work that comes back in-house. So a company shuts a factory in somewhere, India, China, Malaysia, and builds a factory here, in-house, clear. But there's there's probably more work that comes back outsourced. So we were getting the castings, we were getting the machine parts, we were getting the wire harnesses somewhere outside the US, and now we're outsourcing that work to a, a contractor here in the United States. And so so there's, there's probably more of that outsourced work than there is in-house work but the in-house gets most of the publicity because big factory, thousand workers, you know, a lot of governor, you know, all this stuff going on. Right? So, so we, we track both of those, um, and and it, the work can come back doesn't absolutely have to be the same product. It can be a later revision. It could even be company A used to import a product and got you know a big chunk of the market. Company B starts making that product here, takes the market away from them. We say that that market has been reshored. Okay, hmm. so you're talking about ch challenges, I think, and opportunities. Uh, biggest challenge is that U.S. wage rates are high, you know, relative to our major competitors, relative to China, especially, but also Mexico, right across the border. So compared to a lot, of, you know, the low wage countries were three, four times as high, and and so, so you have to be uh, substantially automated to to overcome some of that. Um, so that that's a challenge. Just the availability of skilled workforce is a challenge. And skilled or unskilled, very hard. You you, you hear about it. There's eight hundred thousand a million job openings in manufacturing, and very few people looking for jobs in manufacturing because they're all employed. So the, the skilled the workforce issue is is a challenge. Uh, the the opportunities are huge. C companies have recognized that it's a mistake. Many companies have recognized that it's a mistake to have so much dependent on other countries at a distance, especially China and Russia, Ukraine, so on. And, and they're, they're deciding that they have to do something about it. So, so the opportunities are huge to do it if we can find the, the skilled workforce to, to, to do it. And what goes into, I guess, like, I'm just trying to understand the process a little bit better, because in my mind, you would have to analyze what it would take to, again, as you said, either bring an entire facility back to the U.S. or perhaps find a third party supplier that's able to manufacture your your widget, your product, whatever that may be. So what, how do they analyze perhaps the risk of doing that, the cost of labor, what it's going to take like on the automation side? Like, could you walk us through that process maybe of someone starting to look into reshoring and going through the procedure to figure out whether it is it's the right move for them okay left on their own most companies especially big companies look only at the purchase price mm -hmm. either the wage rate for where to put the factory or the purchase price uh to in terms of buying it so just an in interesting story jack welch one time said he'd like to put his factories on a big barge and move it to a country, let's think China, 
Okay, and then when the when the local wages went up so high that it wasn't economic anymore, he'd take the barge, he'd move it over to Indonesia, you know, and then to India, and then to Africa, and, and move the factory to where the least expensive people were. So, so so wages tend to drive drive the question. The companies talk about purchase price uh, variance, P, P, PV, and the procurement person's job is to reduce. The, the purchase price of the basket of goods that he or she purchases. So the majority of companies do that, uh, but increasingly uh, we are uh, convincing them that they should instead look at a, at a variety of other uh, factors. So uh, uh, we, we talk about uh, total cost of ownership. So total cost starts with that purchase price, the U.S. and China typically say the, the U.S. is going to be higher, maybe 30, 40 percent higher. Uh, but then the system, the, the user answers a series of questions and it, and it adds in the duty and the freight and the carrying cost of inventory and the, uh, the uh, possibility of emergency air freight and the risk of stocking out and all this stuff. And, and eventually it turns out that when they do that, they find that about 20 or 30 percent of what they're now importing, they'll be more profitable sor sourcing or producing here. So. Uh, and then any, anything that can be done in terms of automation, in terms of, uh, you know, reducing the cost to make the product, redesigning it, you know, mm -hmm. applying, like when we were talking before, I think you were talking about uh, uh, theory of constraints, you know, applying methodologies like, like theory of constraints and the, and the somewhat similar uh, quick response manufacturing that comes out of uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, very similar concepts for, for uh, reducing, reducing especially reducing delivery times, because there's, there's a lot of, it looks pretty clear that if you can offer companies a, a dramatically shorter delivery, that they're willing, first of all, they'll buy from you, that's good, assuming you've got quality and so on, mm -hmm. and, and they're willing to pay moderately more, and especially now when, when, they're wait, when they're, the stuff they've ordered from China six months ago is stuck in a boat somewhere yes. along in the Pacific and, and, and there's a darn, you know, and, and, and you're available and, and you're 50 miles away and you can make this stuff for them and get it to them in a week, mm -hmm. you know, that, then that's great. But, you know, one of the problems has been that in the past when delivery wasn't screwed up, I talked to some companies and they'd say, I can get it faster from China, even by boat than I can get it from a U.S. factory because U.S. factories have long lead times and they don't jump on it. And the Chinese work 24 hours a day to get the stuff out kind of thing. So, so it's up to the U.S. company to use methods like QRM, like theory of constraints, and cut the time from the order receipt to the shipment so that they can pick up that month, two months, three months difference in shipping time. And that's, that's their delivery advantage. And then they can either get a bigger share of the market or demand a higher price. And, and many companies will pay for them. Because you're all familiar with uh, just-in-time inventories. Mm, absolutely. Okay. So big trend. Save, companies have cut, cut their balance sheets dramatically, saved them a lot of money. But over the last year or two, everybody's saying, maybe you got too lean. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't go with just-in-time inventory. And so I was on a, an annual meeting of AMA, Association for Manufacturing, Manufacturing Excellence, ex, Excellent Group, Lean Group. And, and they discussed that. And everybody else said, yeah, we're too lean. You're, you've got to go a little bigger on the image. I said, no, we're not lean enough. Because if all those companies were lean, mm -hmm. they would understand that they should not be having an extended supply chain being dependent on stuff that has to be put in a boat and shipped, you know, yes. 5,000 miles and 
and it takes two months to get there, that that's entirely inconsistent with lean, inconsistent with Toyota production system, all these beliefs that, that have come down. And, and if, they were, if they become more, they can become more lean and find local suppliers and reduce their inventory, be more just in time than they have been in the past. So we think the, the, uh, the, the opportunities for reshoring are, are great. Absolutely. Go ahead, Dave. Uh, I was going to say, I I agree with your comments, Ari. I would say that uh, kind of one of my frustrating points when people talk about lean, they think of lean as cost cutting, right? And so lean is not just how how we can cut all of our costs. It is is very much kind of that flow. And so if you can get systems and sub-assemblies much closer to your factory, then you can have significantly less inventory on hand at any part of uh, in any part of your production process. Um, so I, l- let me ask kind of the question. So the last two years or so with all of the supply chain issues, are you finding more people are going through the calculations that you're talking about and saying it makes a lot more sense to reshore if we're going to reshore now is the time to do it? Uh, yes. Uh, they don't all use our calculator. We've got this free online calculator and, and met- many of them from common sense. In many of the cases, the people in the company all knew that they were doing the wrong thing. <laughs> but yeah. the, you know, the Harvard MBA consultant that flew in, parachuted in and told them what to do to cut their costs, they were, they were doing what they were told to do. Their, their bonuses were based on uh, buying the cheapest thing from somewhere, anywhere. It doesn't make any difference. So uh, if you look at the actual trend, uh, which is the, the one thing we're sure of, the when we... When we founded the Reshoring Initiative in 2010, in that year, uh, 6,000 jobs were announced coming back. So 6,000 in 2010, peaked in 2017 with the tax and regulatory cuts. Mm -hmm. ROI went up on being here, came down due to the trade war, business uncertainty, picked up in in, uh, 2020 uh, due to uh, COVID, uh, all kinds of PPE, medicines, all kinds of stuff that had to be made to, to deal with, with COVID came back that we, we found out we were dependent on other countries. And, and then in 2021, the country got going and, and started to invest in the chip foundries and the rare earth minerals and, and EV batteries, all these things that we were dependent on other people for. And so in, 20, in 2021, we got 260,000 manufacturing jobs coming back announced in that year. So up from 6,000 to 260,000. Wow. And and the rate this year looks like 400,000 wow. announced coming back. So, so it's just been a steady, I mean, look, it's yeah. basically steady like this. And, and, and we say that the, if, if you look at what's changed from now from three or four years ago, well, freight costs are three or four times as high. Deliveries are three times as long. The, uh, envir- everybody's starting to recognize the environmental benefits of producing here instead of there. Uh, the uh, risk of uh, Chinese decoupling, mm-hmm. you know, China's mad at us because of uh, Trump, because of Hong Kong, and especially because of Taiwan. And, yes. and they have threatened that if we pass certain le- legislation, they will stop shipping things to the U.S., including key automotive components. So, so company, I, I get in companies call me all the time and I can tell, and some will admit that that's the major reason. Their company's afraid that everything they're getting from China could get cut off. 
and they're starting to do the math to figure out what they can do to bring back. And, and we say, at the, at the least, bring back the 20 or 30 percent that you'll be more profitable bringing back and get in here ahead of the surge. Because if, if China actually did that, if they cut everything off, there's going to be 20,000 companies out there looking for castings and machine parts and everything yes. else. And you're just going to be one of them. And, and you're, out of, you're out of luck. If you've gotten commitments now and you've started production, you're in much better shape. And, and I really like the, you know, the fact that you've mentioned that it goes beyond what you said, that companies at the surface level will probably look at the cost of labor, but ultimately there's a lot more risks, I would say, like in the current uh, state of things in the world. But ultimately, there's many other factors to reshore beyond just the cost. And Harry, I guess like before we dive in a little bit deeper into reshoring, I wanted to talk more about what you're working on at uh, Reshoring Initiative. So what exactly is it that you do? What uh, what do you provide to your customers? Okay, so so we might say we have four pillars. You know, for, first, we're the only one that documents the trend, these number of jobs, what industries, what states, for what reasons, from what countries, all that kind of thing. So we're the only source of data on it. And then we promote, like today we're promoting, you know, it's good, thank you. And, uh, and we, uh, enable. So we have the TCO estimator I described, and then we have uh, other tools that companies can use. So the import substitution program, a company can uh, put up a product that they're really good at making, you know, whatever it is, hard to get this thing in focus. They're really good at making, it's a shaft, it's a bearing, it's a pump. Okay. Yep. And we train them to use TCO to make the case that, that that's that is fitted to buy from them then to import. And then we can identify the biggest importers of those products in the country, what tonnage they're bringing in, whom they're buying them from, roughly what they're paying for them. And then our client goes to those importers and says, we think you're paying 15% less there than here. And we've done the TCO calculation. We've identified 20, 25 points of extra costs and risk. We think it's in both of our interests to get together and find a way to supply you here. Okay. So it's effectively so, simplifying the process, correct? If I if I understand that for someone who's looking to do the initial steps of reshoring and understanding what could be the alternatives here in the U.S., they could go through you and understand the numbers a little bit better and potentially be put in front of um, uh, suppliers that could deliver on the on the product. Well, we we can work with the buyer to help them buy smarter, but we also work with the seller to help them sell smarter. To help them identify the, the the prospects who are now importing, and because you know, I can't get to all the there's one of my I can't get to ten thousand you know companies or hundred thousand buyers and convince them all to reshore. But if I can train five thousand manufacturing company salesmen to go out and make the case and be efficient about it and talk about total cost and tell them whom to go to to call on, mm-hmm. now I've got all I've got like channels out there you know, doing the work for me, and then I can actually retire. <laughs> <laughs> and and are, are you seeing that that is making a difference, uh, going and talking about the, I'm sorry, one more time, what did you call it, Harry? Uh, the, the program that the, you're working on? There's the TCO estimator and there's the import substitution program. The import substitution program, yeah. yes. And so well, when you go and you work with U.S. manufacturers in order to go talk to potential clients, um, are are you part of those conversations? Are those conversations normally well received, or is there difficulty making those substitutions? 
Well, one problem the companies have is making the connection because we, we identify the the company, the importer, the city, the state, the address, but then the the seller, the job shop, the you know, whatever component maker has to be aggressive enough to make a contact at that company and, and figure yeah. the procurement person they've got to talk to. That, that's that's one issue. Huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's ways to do that on LinkedIn. If you're smart, you go in LinkedIn, you get contacts, you, you hustle around. To, um, but the be- best case I have, there's a company outside Chicago, an EMS company, they make printed circuit boards and electronic assemblies. And uh, they came to me about five years ago and said, Harry, uh, we need some help. We've got a big problem. I said, what's the problem? They said, well, uh, we're about to lose a big order. A Chinese competitor has offered a lower price. And uh, so Tony and I did the TCO calculation. Tony took it in. And I have a letter from him saying that showing the customer that t- that Maury's total cost was lower, even though his price was higher, was the key to winning a 60 that six zero million dollar order. Wow. Okay. That's very impressive. All right. So anybody out there in the audience, I'd be delighted to have you help you win a one million or a half million dollar order. You know, just, just use the tool. If you do it, if you do it and it wins, tell me about it. And if you need the help, email me and get some help. And, and then I'll have more stories to tell to, to David and Vlad next time. <laughs> no, I, I like that. So we will be sure to, to drop links to the TCO calculator on there. And if there's some more information on the import substitution program, I, I imagine we can find more information on the Reshoring Initiative website. We will make sure that we drop that information if people would like to, uh, to read more about it. Because yeah. I, I think that, that that's a very compelling story. Let me give you another couple of cases. The uh, um, we, we just just last night I was editing a report that some Bowling Green University students, who graduate students, engineers, had been doing for a local uh, transportation equipment company in which they'd used the TCO calculator to do the analysis of what parts to bring back. So I trained them, and then they did the analysis. I edited the report a bit, and they're submitting it today, I think, and 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 it, it was it was very positive. We have banks coming to us and saying, uh, Harry, uh, looks like reshoring's a trend. How do we recommend, how do we pick which companies to invest in that will benefit the most from reshoring, either by buying smarter or selling smarter? We have uh, private equity companies coming to us and say, how do we decide what companies to buy? And once we've bought them, how do we guide them to, to maximize the benefits from reshoring? Uh, we've, uh, I've had conversations with the national economic uh, council uh, that re- that's part of the White House, mm-hmm. and and in about in June 9th, I think I'm testifying to the U.S.-China Economic Security and Review Commission, which reports wow. the president into Congress. And their mission, their responsibility, is to identify actions the U.S. can take to strengthen the U.S. relative to China, specifically. And so they've called on me to testify as to things that they they can do. So we're having a lot of fun. <laughs> that seems like a very interesting discussion, Harry. That's I'm looking forward to the outcomes of uh, of how that goes. But uh, I wanted to maybe ask you, you know, on that same point, are you seeing similar, I would say, initiatives when it comes to reshoring across the board for different industries? Do you see this happening more in, like, as you mentioned, a few examples in the automotive industry, in the electronics industry? Like, what are your thoughts on how it's going to impact the different segments in manufacturing in uh, in the U.S. 
the simplest thing is to look at our website and under the heading resources, drop down uh, data and you get the uh, 2020 and about to have the 2021 data report. And in it, it maybe the fourth or fifth figure, 10th page, there's a list of the top industries and how many jobs, how many companies have reshored in that industry. It, it turns so anybody wants details, they can find it there. But the, the transportation is clear number one, because when they when anybody brings a factory here, it's 2,000, 3,000 jobs. You know, it comes in these massive chunks, and uh, and it's a huge industry anyway. So transportation is number one. I think appliances is number two. Maybe electronics. Uh, machinery, you know, so, something on chemicals, you know, something on that order, and uh, a, a lot, a lot has been refineries, because because of shale gas, the natural gas here is cheaper than anywhere other than Saudi Arabia, and therefore it's cheaper to make fertilizers and plastics and things like that here than it is in Europe or Japan or China and Europe. So the tendency is, hundred billion dollars worth of investment here, uh, that would have otherwise been been offshore. Um, well, as a general rule, uh, let's say recently, the last year or two, big trend towards chips, EV batteries, uh, rare earth minerals, uh, pharmaceuticals, PPE, all that stuff that we, we recognize as being a problem. So a big a surge towards that. Um, as a general rule, products that are uh, heavy and therefore have a high freight cost relative to their labor content. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, products that where the design changes frequently so you don't want to have prototypes going back and forth across the ocean to you know to approve and so on uh, where there's seasonal demand you know if, if you're gonna send so like t-shirt plain plain t-shirts probably or some under underwear underwear seasonally says same amount every year or every month probably yeah whereas um, uh, Santa Claus outfits you sell more October, November, December. You know? so, so where there's seasonal demand, now if you, if you get it from China or India, you have to order it nine months in advance, and maybe it gets here, maybe it misses Christmas. You know, get it here and done. So where there's seasonal demand, it makes sense to, to make it here. Um, uh, where there's intellectual property risk, something you can lose that you're afraid you're going to lose. Uh, you know, you, so, so a variety of those characteristics would. would so when, if I come to a company. And they say, Harry, where should we start? I, I don't. I do not say take four random products and do the analysis. I say take the products where you're having, where you have pain, where you have uh, delivery issues or quality issues, where your inventory is too big or too small, where you're losing orders because you stock out, where there's too much travel, the late night telephone calls to somewhere. You know, take it where you've got people that are really irritated by that product because then we know when we do the analysis, they're they're going to. They're going to help us <laughs> to yes. get it done instead of fighting us about it, right? And 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 do four or five of those products, and then see what you learn from that, and then decide where to go from there. Yeah, I think that makes sense. No, definitely appreciate that, and we'll have the links. You know, for those who are maybe listening to us after the show, we're going to have links posted in the uh, resources section underneath the uh, podcast. But Harry, I wanted to go back to a discussion we had a little bit earlier, which was on the workforce. And so my thoughts, as you have mentioned, when we bring back these facilities, or again, if we increase operations in the U.S., it's going to require a, a little bit more of automation, right? And so there's going to be some engineering resources involved, but also 
I would say the skilled trades involved. So what are your thoughts on, I would say mainly what are going to be the skills in demand as we continue reshoring, but also what could be potential opportunities, you know, for someone who's currently either maybe studying in engineering or looking at trade schools or maybe even managing personnel looking to upskill their teams? What would be the uh, key opportunities that you see there? Okay. So f first, uh, just sort of for fun, you know, I, 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 I never use the word trades. In, in Germany and Switzerland, that's a profession. Okay. okay. It's the tool and die profession, the plumbing profession, whatever. Because over there, 60, that's 60% of the high school kids go into a profession by way of an apprenticeship. Okay. And, and it's a lot easier to entice the parents and the students into a profession than into a trade these days. Okay, so, so try, try, to use, try to use profession, huh? So we, we think the best, and, and, and Germany and, and Switzerland and, and Austria and country, countries like that have done an incredible job. They get really smart kids, and I've taken tours over to see their apprentice programs. They get really smart kids at the age of 16, come into the apprenticeship, they come out at 20, and they're incredibly well-trained. And, 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 and the average skilled worker there is they're starting off with a higher intellectual capacity than ours. Cause we, we don't get many in the middle and the upper half kind of thing. And, yep. and they get so much better training. So finally their people are better than ours in these, in, in not, not the bad, not all, not a hundred, but on average, like I took a, a group of apprentices to a Swiss machine tool manufacturer. And one of the managers there said, Harry, we've got, when we're designing the program for a part, we're going to sell a machine, we're going to send, send it with a program to make this complex part. When we do that for uh, Switzerland or Germany, Japan, we do it in one setup, one complicated program. When we do it for the US, we break it down into two setups, two programs, because on average, your programmers and workers are not sophisticated enough to deal with a more complicated programming. Okay, and, and that, that, that raises cost, it reduces quality, it extends delivery. And so if we need to have a skilled workforce that's as good as the best in the world, and, and, on, and I, I, I hear, you know, criticize people, but on average we don't, because for us it's been a trade instead of a profession, so to speak, okay? So, so we, we, I recommend for people is to, um, <clears throat> I didn't do it, you know, so, but what I recommend for people is, is to start off right out of high school, uh, go go into an apprenticeship, let let the company pay for you to go to community college and get your associate's degree in engineering. As soon as you're done with that, uh, go go nights to get your bachelor's degree in engineering, you know, and then eventually perhaps go to get an MBA and at nights, you know, and with the company paying for it, yeah, you know, and the and and the when I when I've taken these tours to Switzerland and I did it four times, you'd see that the the managers of the companies, the leaders, the owners, the vice presidents were ex apprentices. Here they'd be ex MBAs or something. Or they'd be MBAs over there. They they started young. They joined the company as an apprentice, and they know the product. They know the process. They know the customers. They know the team. They, they know the market and they work their way up in the company. They get an engineering or a management degree and eventually they're running the company. Whereas here, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't happen very often. You, you have to have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, people like me, you know, and, and I'd be, have done my job better if I'd spent four years 
actually doing some of that hand stuff instead of just all the brainy stuff. You know? Yeah, I would definitely agree. I, I guess I'm curious because you've seen a lot of these programs, and I'm again, I don't think that there's maybe a, a one answer to this. But do you think the programs are getting better in the U.S.? Are we at least like on the right track of getting <clears throat> education down, or is it still? I guess, is there still a lot of room for improvement, so to speak? I, I, I like to say that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, Germany was a 10 and, and we were a one. You know, Germany was great. And and now over time, Germany and the others, they've been coming down because like I, 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 I and we've been coming up. Not, not a lot. We're still not as good as they are, but we're going in the right direction. So I, I was a, on the board of the International Special Tooling and Machining Association. And we had annual meetings, we had meetings and people come in from all the countries and even from developing countries, Hungary, you know, Lithuania, you know, Poland, Czechoslovakia, uh, the, the, the representatives would say, all the kids want to go to university. Nobody wants to work in manufacturing. Nobody wants to be a toolmaker or a welder or a machinist. And, and I read an article from a that quoted a Chinese factory owner saying the same things. So you can't get people to work in the factory anymore. They all they all want to go to university kind of thing. And and we went through that 20 years ago, and now kids are starting to understand about hundred thousand dollar tuitions and four years without making any money, and or maybe five years depending on how efficient you are. And so the so the, we're we're coming up, and the rest of the world's sort of going down, and. And, and so I'm, I'm optimistic that that can continue. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things I recommend is, is that the government could do a lot for this. The, have you ever seen the bar charts, bar chart like this? And the headline is education pays or million dollars more lifetime income with a bachelor's degree. And here's no high school, high school, uh, community college, bachelor's, master's, and income goes up a number of degrees. Yes. And this is the labor department selling that. So, so I, about, 10 years ago, Department of Labor called me down to tell them how to get the country ready for all the flux of jobs coming in with reshoring. So I'm in the Secretary of Labor's conference room. And I said, well, first, we have to get the Department of Labor to stop being part of the problem and become part of the solution. And they said, OK, what do you have? <laughs> so I pulled up their chart and I said, this says education pays. And it shows it says you got to get degrees. And I thought you were responsible for the manufacturing workforce. Yeah. And I thought you were responsible for the apprentice programs. So in these bar charts, why don't you have one bar here that shows the average income who of people who've passed an apprenticeship and show that it's equally good as a bachelor's degree. And therefore, when the guidance counselors, the, the, the parents, the uh, principal you know, looks at that and says, huh, yeah, apprentice program. Yeah, that makes sense. Joe, Sue, Bill, why don't you go into an apprenticeship program? So. So I'm continually uh, beating on the labor and uh, education departments to tell all the story rather than just the, this myopic version that they like to tell. So anybody, out, anybody out there that can help get that message out, I'd love to have your help. <laughs> no, no. So I, I love that, Harry. And I, I need to, to follow up on this slightly. So I, I love the uh, apprentice programs, right? So I, I've worked with a number of people who are trained German engineers who went through apprenticeships. I, I know a number of people who emigrated over to the, the EU and specifically Germany to go through these apprentice programs. Um, and I know a lot of people who go into 
what before today we would all call the the, the trades, but now we're going to work on uh, work on profession, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, like, I, I myself went went to tech school, and there would be other opportunities if there was a lot of of apprenticeships available. I guess I haven't seen apprenticeships available in the U.S. in mass like I've seen and heard of over in the the EU. Are there more apprentice programs? Like, I love love the idea of what you're talking about. I haven't necessarily seen a lot of these four years apprentice programs, you know, through manufacturing companies. Do these exist? I guess is, is the first question. Y- y- yes. Okay. Uh, not, not as many as I'd like. Uh, the, the one I knew best was uh, in Chicago. There's a, a trade association called TMA, Tooling and Manufacturing Association. Mm-hmm. And at the peak 20 years ago, they had a thousand apprentices in their program, 100, 500 companies, each with one or yep. two apprentices. Yeah? And yep. then 2008, 2009, they shut the program down. It was down to zero, almost zero. Yep. And now they're back up 500 or so. So it's come back from the worst of times. Um, I, I read about apprentice programs starting often. Um, hard, hard for a small company because you spend a lot of money. You have to have someone train them. That's full time. Mm-hmm. Somebody trained them. And and then they graduate from your apprentice program and General Motors hires them away for $10 yes. more an hour. <laughs> you know, so that's no fun. So what I've seen, one of the ones I like best, there's... Apprenticeship 2000 is in Charlotte, North yeah. Carolina. And there's uh, maybe 10 or 15 companies from small, like mold maker, uh, to big kind of company, you know, the billion dollar year company. And, and they get together, they promote it collectively. The ki- they, they find the, ki- the students, that they, they give the ch- students some choice of where to do their apprenticeship. And then and maybe they move them around a little bit so they get more experience. So they've got a, a, a rather professional way of going about it. And, and the, the one company I know, Scott uh, Rotman, I think, runs it. This is a mold maker there. And and last time I checked, he had maybe 30 employees. And the average age of the people on the floor was uh, 32 or, oh, you know, or something like that. When you go to most mold makers, it's 50. Yes. <laughs> so he's got a future built in because he's got these smart kids that he got on board. He trained them right. And, and they've got careers ahead of them. So, so, so I, I believe more. And is there enough? No. Uh, one, one solution. You're all familiar with uh, co- college loans. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is you have it's 1.5 trillion dollars worth of loans, and and there's like 100 billion of defaults a year or yes. something like that. It's hard. And government's always wanting to write them off to to buy votes and so on. And the uh, uh, and, and but we don't have apprentice loans, and 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 one reason companies don't have don't do apprenticeships is that they're afraid of that scenario I described, where you pay the kid a decent wage because he needs yep. it, he's got a kid and a house, and you know, they need you know, fifteen an hour or more, and, and at first they're being trained, you're not making anything, and and so so I've I've been pushing for apprentice loans, so the apprentice maybe you pay him. Uh, 12, the company does, and they and they borrow five from the government from the apprentice loan program. So now they're making 17, not bad. You can live on that. And and at the end of the apprenticeship, if they stay on with the company over five years, the company pays off the loan. Okay. Okay. So everybody wins. The the, the government invests a little money. You know, the the company invests some money. The company gets the worker. The worker gets the training. And and so 
why aren't we doing that when you can go and get $100,000 worth of, of loans to study sociology, anthropology, basket weaving, all the stuff where there's already tens of thousands of unemployed graduates who are working in Starbucks or McDonald's. You say. So let, let's, let's, let's devote the resources to where the need is rather than just be politically correct about it. Things we can do. I like that, Harry. I, I, I like that a lot. And, and I want to continue this conversation, but first we have some people to thank. So Vlad's going to play a sound that we can't hear, and then I'm going to go thank Bright Machines. Awesome. So we want to thank uh, Bright Machines uh, for sponsoring the reshoring theme and all their support of the community. Uh, at Bright Machines, we believe that there's a smarter way to build things. That's why we're working with manufacturers around the world to rethink manufacturing operations for whatever comes next. We enable manufacturers to reshore more quickly, to future-proof their factories, to keep up with fluctuating demand and to save money. With a full-stack solution for assembly and inspection that marries deep industry and technology expertise with hardware and software in new ways for a more intelligent approach that's more flexible and more scalable for the next normal and beyond. And then Bright has given us a couple of actually great guides uh, about reshoring. So they've got a guide for 2022 that actually features Harry. Uh, there, there's a quote of Harry in there and there is a link to the TCO calculator in there, um, like right in the first couple of pages. And then they have the top five answers to reshoring uh, as well. And so I'm gonna go ahead and drop some bit.ly links uh, down in the chats below. And if you guys are listening, uh, you guys can check the show notes uh, for those links to those articles as well. So we want to thank uh, Bright for uh, for all their support of this and the reshoring theme um, and the community in general. Um, but yeah, I, I want to get back to reshoring, Harry, because th this is this is a very exciting conversation. One of the things that kind of I was thinking about is like th there are a bunch of really good initiatives that you've talked about. I love the apprentice program uh, that, that you've described. And I think you said to something to the effect of you are only one person. And so you, you need help, right? You need to help teach other people how to do the TCOs uh, so that they can go and, and find new opportunities. But I guess kind of the broad question is, what can we do to help either Dave and Vlad or the people listening? What can we do to help to bring more factories, more facilities, more jobs uh, back into North America because that helps all of us in the end. Oh, uh, if, if there are, I, I break it down between the buyers and the sellers. So if, if you work at a company that's mainly a buyer, you buy a lot of components, a lot of material, a lot of finished products, well then encourage procurement, you know, purchasing within your company to, to rethink and, and if you know they're importing a lot, and especially if you know they're having problems with deliveries, you know, then, then say, hey, why don't we get them locally? Why don't we, how about that factory that we own down the street that's only half used? Why don't we put, get that going again and put, get, hire some people and get things going right here in town and help our town and our state and our country? So, so but that's for buyers and for sellers. It's use the TCO as, as a sales tool and, and try our import substitution program that will help identify the leads. If it's buyers... Uh, you know, if it's like consumers, yep. you know, Americans are great consumers. That, that's what, that's how we drag China out of poverty to, yes. to supply us. Okay, so I had this interest. I think fun quote: If, if you're out at, at a store and you're about to buy something, and you and you and, and it's made outside the United States, especially China, 
ask yourself, am I buying this because I need it or just because I like buying things and, and I don't really need it? Well, if you're just buying it because you, you're just, just for fun, well, then look around the store and find something made in the U.S. that you don't need that you could buy just for fun. I like that. Because <laughs> you don't I need like it. That. It shouldn't make any difference. And then you'll have equal or more gratification for yourself from the buying process. And you'll give an American the gratification of having a job to produce the product. So so just think think about what you're buying. It, it's hard. I mean, I go into stores and I want to buy something made in USA and I can't find anything. Yep. In that in the categories I look at, there's nothing there. And and so what I, I call I call on retailers to put a big sign up over their service desk and say with a flag, big flag on it, and say, ask us about our made in USA products. And then if I come up and ask them, they say, they, oh sure, they print uh, sh- you know shirts, aisle three, shelf four, uh, running shoes, you know aisle six, row seven, or you know something like that. And, and, and now I can find the made in USA. And then if people keep asking them then hopefully they'll have more made in USA products. They'll sell more made in <laughs> Things keep going better kind of thing. So there's a lot that, 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 that retail can do, that consumers, uh, manufacturers, government. There's a role for everybody. You know, I, you know I'm, my, my goal is to bring back 5 million manufacturing jobs, which is a 40% increase in U.S. manufacturing. Wow. And it needs Dave and... Vlad and everybody out there listening. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to, I was going to ask a question, uh, I guess about the government's involvement. And I know that we talked a little bit about that uh, earlier in the stream, but are there again, like programs, initiatives that the government is, I would say putting forward for manufacturers to make that transition a little bit easier. And I think, you know, we've talked about obviously some of the policies that have been, put in place and I guess some positive, some negative that are maybe forcing reshoring that influence the risk of, uh, you know, producing in China or offshore, but are there any maybe monetary support programs that are offered by the government? And I would say also like tying into that long question, uh, what do you think like the government will be or should be doing more than what it is currently doing? Okay. So, so in terms of what they do, uh, there's a, an office, part of commerce called Select USA, which helps companies decide to do this foreign direct investment or, or U.S. companies in the small on this so far to reshore. Uh, there's the Manufacturing Extension Partnerships, the MEPs. There's one in every state. And one of their missions is to encourage reshoring. I've worked with a bunch of them around around the country. Uh, there's the Exim Bank, which is whose job is to um, provide financing and insurance for what, like you're shipping to Indonesia and you want to make sure you get paid, they ensure that you'll get paid. Um, so they, they've announced recently that they will make money available to reshore production, especially if the production is going to be exported. And that's fine. Uh, there's a bill in Congress, I think it's the America Competes Act, uh, that we're a, uh, an endorser of, and it calls for a $45 billion, billion fund that will be available to loan or grant uh, to companies that want to reshore. So that's the first substantial general purpose money as opposed to specifically chips or um, small business administration, you know, others like that. Finally, a lot of the money actually until now has come from economic developers. 
So each state and, and most cities and counties have an economic development administration that encourages companies to build factories there or to expand, to retain, and so yep. on. And, and they make, you know, they'll put up a million, half a million, a hundred thousand, whatever it is, depending on how many jobs that you can add. Uh, and they believe you're going to do that. You know, you have to do it. You only get the money if you, if you actually bring the jobs. <laughs> There's a, there's a lot of look, other countries are much more aggressive. China is much more like when Apple was first going over there, I think, and, and trying to find Foxconn. I think the Chinese built the factory and said, OK, how about this? Kind of thing. You're, you're not you're not going to find anybody in the U.S. doing that. So the Ch China and others have been much. The, the other countries have industrial policies, and that's been verboten here because it, it, it doesn't. It, the Democrats don't want to help, help industry so much, and the and the Republicans believe it should be a free market decision. But we, we, but every other country does it, and that puts us at a disadvantage. So so we are, we have something called the competitiveness toolkit that takes a series of of uh, industrial policies that we could implement and says how many jobs we bring back if we did each of them. So so our our number one recommendation is is billions of dollars for skilled workforce because you absolutely need it if you're going to grow. Uh, second is get the dollar down by 20 or 30 percent. It's generally agreed the dollar, because we're the reserve currency, is overstated by overvalued by 20 or 30 percent, makes us too expensive. So get the dollar down. Have a value-added tax. Now, almost every other country, if we ship something there, it gets hit with a 15 percent tariff in addition to their duty. When they ship something here, their government gives them a 15 percent credit, like a subsidy. We don't do it. We're stupid. Um, Keep the corporate income tax reasonable. You know, don't rate. There was talk about raising it to 28 percent. Don't do that. Keep it at 21 percent, or lower it further, uh, and tax tax rich people like Dave and Vlad instead. Okay. Oh, we hope one day, Harry. We hope one day to have made enough money that we're the rich people to get taxed like that, like they're talking about. No. So. Anyway, so, so those are the kinds of things that they are doing, and the things that they have not done a good enough job at. Okay, so are, are there skills? So uh, at least probably 20 or 30% of the people who listen to this show are in automation, are in some sort of service providers. Are there skills that you see are needed to help manufacturing companies now, two, three years from now, in order to increase their, in order to increase their throughput or to remain to be competitive? Um, in this market as we continue to reshore? Uh, automation or, or anything along those lines? Yeah, I think automation is, is clearly essential. Uh, and the reality, you know, it, it, like you say, are, are we automating? You know, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, industry 4.0, blah, blah, blah. You know, you read articles about uh, tax the robots because they're going to take all our jobs. Yeah, kind of yeah. And, and yet manufacturing productivity in the U.S., has increased approximately half a percent per year for the last 10 years. Yeah. So you've had almost no manufacturing productivity increase despite all the talk and, and to some extent the investment. So the automation has not succeeded. I, I believe it can. It's certainly there's examples where it's been amazing, but it, on the average, it hasn't done what it should. And, and therefore, like, like, so, <clears throat> like and, and yet people say, don't, don't automate because it's gonna cost us jobs. And I say that because, like you see in my map there, because we're we're competing across the world mm -hmm. with other countries, especially low wage countries and and those with industrial policies and and very good skilled workforces, 
Um, we say we will lose more jobs to Chinese automation if we do not automate yep. than we will to U.S. automation if we do, because we've got to compete for the jobs. We've got to compete for the work. So, so we say automate, automate, automate. We can just balancing the trade deficit will bring back 40 percent increase in U.S. manufacturing. So you can use that to uh, that increase in production will will allow us to actually increase the number of manufacturing jobs, even if we dramatically automate and, and increase productivity. So there's just it, it, automate is, is clearly one of the key answers. I, I love that, Harry, and, and I'm going to ask you the, the softball question that I feel like we've been talking about uh, for most of the show, but I ask everyone. So what do you think the future of reshoring looks like? <laughs> uh, it's this 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 year looks like 400,000 jobs announced, which is incredible. Uh, but but there's a limit. If, if, if I if I if I could bring back a million jobs this year, we already have a shortage of 800,000 manufacturing jobs. And so you'd add a million to that and, and the whole system would, would collapse. Deliveries would extend. You know, it wouldn't be good. So so it's a question of um, uh, attracting more people in, into the professions. It's, it's a matter of companies expanding, companies making the decision, seeing the wisdom of bringing it back, listening to the podcast and yep. getting on board. Um, Absolutely. It's got to happen, though, because the U.S. has... Looking forward, we've got a trillion dollar plus budget deficit at the federal level, and we've got a trillion plus trade deficit. And, and if you keep having those time after time, eventually the dollar will collapse. It won't come down 20, 30%. It'll come down like happens in Brazil or Argentina or, you know, or somewhere like that. And, and, then, and then we'll be the uh, country where the Chinese send the dirty work to get done because they don't want to do it anymore because they've fixed up their own environment. So, so we think uh, the, the, the opportunities there is a question of people getting on board. You know, one thing I wanted to point out is, is my manufacturing is cool t-shirt. I love it. Okay. And, and, and it is, it's, it's a wonderful industry. It's a wonderful profession. And you know, everybody who's out there, uh, I hope you'll agree. And, and if, if you're not in manufacturing, you'll get in. If you, if you've got kids or grandkids, uh, Tell them it's a wonderful, wonderful profession, wonderful career. No, I would agree with that. And I would say one of the overarching themes over the course of the now 60 shows we've done, Harry, and the thousands of conversations that Vlad and I have had is that many people don't consider manufacturing as a viable career option, right? Like unless you grew up and you had an uncle or a dad or someone who worked in a facility and maybe you got a start at 18 or 20 working at a facility in or working at a service provider in something. No one necessarily thinks of manufacturing as a viable career opportunity when you're young. And I feel like we have to change that conversation so that people know that manufacturing is not only a viable career opportunity, but is generally a very stable opportunity that can provide you and your family a decent wage uh, over the over the lifetime of you wanting to work uh, just in general. Yeah, you, know, you may have heard the pejorative, uh, the three D's, dirty, dark and dangerous. Yes. That people talk, say about manufacturing. Yes. So I'm, I'm working on an article in which I I take the three D's. I add two more a dead end and um, dead end and declining. OK, okay so I, got, I got five D's now. And then I, I came up with five S's like shiny and safe 
okay. instead of dirty and dangerous. Okay. Yep. So I have five, five S's. And then to the extent that I can prove that point statistically, for example, the average accident rate and death rate in manufacturing is lower than the average of all employment. Yeah. Okay, so it is a safe it is a safe job on average. Okay, uh, and and it's and in terms of uh, dead end, that wages go up faster for people in manufacturing than they do in other occupations. So so and then for things like uh, uh, dirty and dark, I've gotten companies in so trade associations to send me in pictures of the most beautiful <laughs> places where you can eat <laughs> off the floor. So, so yeah. imagine this article, I'm going to start with the three D's, the five D's, the five S's, and then yeah. prove statistically or by pictures, the examples, get, get that overview published somewhere as high up as I can, Industry Week, uh, New York Times, you know, whatever. And then, and then I'm going to offer to uh, trade associations and states if you'd like a copy of this adapted for your use, for you to use to promote, to get the kids to be recruited into manufacturing, we'll put in the pictures, some statistics about your state and the pictures of companies in your state or your industry. Now you've got a, a tool uh, custom made to convince kids that this is the right place to go. So, so we're- I think that'd be amazing. That'd yeah. be really cool, Harry. I think, you know, like I'll maybe draw a very short parallel to how I got into manufacturing and I, to be quite frank with you, like I didn't know what was available in the industry, right? So after graduation, I started looking everywhere. And as you know, I think most manufacturers don't do the best of jobs at promoting themselves or even showcasing some of their technology that is there. So uh, the automation space is, I would say, really awesome once you get to see it. But once I actually went through the interview process and went to see what an automated manufacturing line looks like, I knew like, yeah, that's where I'm going. You know what I mean? Like it's, and I think like they maybe do a disservice to themselves by not showing, as you said, the pictures of actual manufacturing processes, because you get the picture of, you know, 20, 30 years ago when it yeah. perhaps was uh, dirty and dark. But at, at this point, I think there's so much like technology. I think there's a lot of funding going into automation. Everything has been like revamped quite a bit. And that's been for decades, right? Like it's been, getting better and better. So anyways, to me, I'm very visual. So I really like that tour. And once I saw what I would be working with, I was sold on the opportunity immediately. So one, one good way to get that across uh, IMTS, the big uh, machine tool show in Chicago this year, this year in September, the, the biggest trade show in the country or in, in, in the Americas, uh, traditionally 130,000 attendees, and they have a student summit attached to it. Okay. And they get somewhere between 10 and 20,000, mainly high school, but some community college students uh, drive, bust in from up to 100, 150 miles away to attend and see the robots and the machine tools and all the exotic, you know, it, it, nothing ever looks as good as, as in a, a, a trade show with a, with a beautiful model sitting there to show it off, you know, yep. it looks pretty good. So, so, so anybody that's anywhere near Chicago, uh, f find that online and, and get your high school to, um, to send a busload. And, and they, you know, we're, we're, we want more, more students to come in because you, the younger you get them and get them started, the more likely they are to choose manufacturing. Absolutely. No, I, I love that. So talking along those lines, Harry, uh, do you have some career advice? It's one of our favorite favorite segments, either for someone maybe looking to 
get into manufacturing or maybe someone looking to do some amount of reshoring? Do you have some career advice for people to, uh, to get deeper into this? Well, I, I think what I said before, that if, if I had it to start over again, you know, probably apprenticeship followed by with associate's degree, bachelor's degree in engineering, MBA, something like that, or, or, or just stop and be a really great toolmaker. Which is wonderful. I mean, I run into companies where the toolmakers with, with overtime are making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Nothing wrong with a hundred thousand dollars a year. No. And uh, uh, so, so that's that's my basic uh, career advice. It's, it's not for everybody. You have to be reasonably numeric. You have to be able to work with people. You you have to be good with your hands. You know, it's adjusting and setting and doing things and uh, 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 maintenance. You know, there's a huge demand for with all the automation. Instead of having a, a laborer do something, you now have a technician installing and repairing and programming the robot. But that's a, that's a fun job. Most kids, computers. This is, this is really this is uh, I would think as good as it gets for a lot of people. Perfect. No, I, I love that, Harry. I I don't know. I'm pumped up to uh, to get back out on the line on uh, on Friday morning. I can tell you that after after this conversation. Um, so I, I like to joke that this is our, our, our unsponsored Audible segment in which I ask you for a book recommendation or two, and then Vlad goes and spends his monthly Audible uh, audiobook credit. But do you, do you have a, an interesting book or two, um, either uh, either along the lines of business manufacturing or just in general that you enjoy? Yeah, I, I didn't read a lot of business books. I probably should have, but I didn't. Uh, one, one that I do like related to it, this helped me. Yeah. Is called Give Your Speech, Change the World. And it talks about how to give a presentation, sort of like we're doing here, and, and, and how, to, how to relate to the audience, how to get their attention. But most important, how you don't make a speech, you give a speech. You give it to the audience so that they have something to walk away with, something that will help them do something different. If they don't go away and do anything different in their lives for their company, for themselves, for the country, for some, then it was a waste of time. You shouldn't have given the speech. You, you got to give it to them. And then for fun, I, I read uh, sci-fi and fantasy, and one of my favorite series is is the Dominic Flandry series by Frederick Pohl. And he, this is you know twenty thousand years in the future, galactic empire kind of thing. And this guy is a a James Bond of of that era, so to speak. Ooh. And so, it, really, I think a wonderful series of books. And I, I'd encourage any, if, 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 you, if you think science fiction is good for you, this this is one of the ones to read. You've sold me on the series, uh, Harry. I'm getting off of this live show and I'm going to go see if I can't go rent it from the library uh, immediately. Uh, but no, that, that is amazing. So on the sci-fi note, it is May the 4th. We'll wish everyone a happy Star Wars Day. Um, I did make the joke in Tim Warborn's live stream earlier today. Uh, happy Star Trek Day, everyone. So I can now uh, I, I can now uh, both get all the love and all the hate uh, that we possibly can from the sci-fi fans um, in one foul swoop. But no, th th that's amazing, Harry. Thank you. And then last question that I have for you is, is who should reach out to you? Uh, who do you want to help? Who do you need help from? Well, uh, companies that have or might reshore. If you have done, we'd love to hear about it. That's how we track the 400,000 jobs kind of thing yep. that, that have or might. We can help them again, gets up to 500,000 government agencies that can encourage the trend. Um, uh, President Biden, you know, he's, he, they've done some good things. They're sort of applying tourniquets, like like do, do the chips foundry, but they're not solving the underlying problem of making the U.S. price competitive. Until we become price competitive, 
companies won't bring the work back. So I'm, I'm afraid, for example, with the, with the chip foundries, that they're going to invest tens of billions of dollars, and every other country is going to do it. There's going to be a surplus of chips. The price is going to come down, and we're going to be dependent on China to buy our chips to make the electronic assemblies <laughs> and chips back to us. And that doesn't make any sense. So, so, the, so in addition to doing the chip foundries, you need to change the terms of trade, change the dollar, change things like that, so that we become the great place for the chips to be assembled into electronic pro- products once again. And and bright, I, I know bright, they make electronic assemblies of various kinds. So so you mentioned they're the sponsor. They they, yep. they they provide equipment that could be helpful in making the U.S. once again competitive in that kind of product. Absolutely. No, I agree with that. So I know that we can we should be able to help you with companies who are looking to reshore jobs or, or products. Uh, I know that we can help you with some government agencies. I have no, I would imagine that the president isn't listening to this show, but like j- just as an aside, uh, if President Biden or literally any other president of any country listens to this show now or in the future, please drop me a line. Uh, I-, I would love to chat and then we can also pass you along to, we can pass you along to, uh, to Harry. We'll also add in like prime ministers, premiers, kings, queens of any country. Yeah, you guys absolutely fall on that list. Please, uh, please feel free to, uh, to comment and or reach out directly if you do listen to this show. Uh, but, but no, Harry, this was amazing. I, I think everyone should be pumped up uh, for more uh, reshoring. I know that we will have to go ahead and post the links to some of the, the, the items that you have coming out, and we will absolutely make sure that we follow the reshoring initiative more closely so that we can make sure that all of the amazing things that you guys are doing continues to uh, to make it to the, uh, the manufacturing uh, hub networks uh group and uh, and family as we continue to grow but uh but no we, we want to thank you so much for your time thank you everyone for listening and being here with us live thank you for listening uh on your podcast if you are still with us if you have not given us a thumbs up and rated us five stars on your apple podcast and your or not itunes anymore but spotify and audible and all of those other places uh please go ahead and do it it helps to uh, it helps to go ahead and push the show further. And if you know someone who would like to listen to this or any other show, please feel free to, uh, to pass it along. Uh, I think we picked up about 30 or 40% of our listeners because people go ahead and share the podcast. And like, this is great, which is always a positive, but no, uh, we want to, again, thank you, Harry. Thank you everyone until next week. We'll see you all soon. Thank you everyone.